Hello and welcome back to another episode of Control-Alt-Delete. My guest today is Rana Faruha. She is an author, Financial Times columnist and CNN analyst, writing and investigating into how today's biggest tech companies are hijacking our data, our livelihoods and our minds. I really wanted to do an episode on big tech, aka FANG, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix and Google, and how tech has changed and how it's changed us. Rana's book, Don't Be Evil, looks into how big tech has lost its way over the past few decades through her skilled reporting and unparalleled access to these topics through nearly 30 years of covering business and technology. Rana tells a story of how giddy idealism turned into greed and how we were sold a world where information was going to be free, but we became the product being monetized. The users became the thing that got exploited. The book questions how the democratised internet has actually threatened the very fabric of our democracy. In her book, she lays out a plan for how we resist and slightly rebel against tech. But I wanted to ask the question, can we rebel or are we just too entrenched? I hope you enjoyed this episode. I found it truly fascinating. We discuss the ins and the outs of where we are now with the technology that we use And if you enjoyed it, please do leave a review or a rating on iTunes. It really helps podcasters grow their show. Thanks again for listening. And here is the episode. I jumped at the chance to interview you. Your book (laughs) is packed full of very scary stuff, but it's pretty urgent, this book. So thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I just want to start off because people listening might not know what big tech necessarily means. I just wondered if we could like clear that up before we dive in. Yeah, yeah. So it's not a scientific term, of course, but big tech generally refers to the big platform technology companies like Google, Amazon, Facebook, Apple. Sometimes people call them the fangs. It's, you know, generally the world's biggest technology companies. It's quite funny that it does spell fang, just because I guess (laughs) they are like getting their teeth into literally everything. Uh, Yes, for sure. (laughs) Some of the stats just to kick off, because I guess that the whole point of the book is it's absolutely taking over. And it's a very small group of people actually who are like in control of everything. 90% of all world's new spending is on Facebook. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like we don't have a massive choice, do we? Like we have to kind of go with these companies because they're the biggest ones. That's right. And actually, that's one of the first reasons that I got interested in writing this book. So I'm a columnist for the Financial Times, so I tend to dig into those kinds of economic statistics. And I had come across very early in my job an amazing fact that 80% of all the wealth in global corporations is in just 10% of companies. And they're the companies like these with the most data on what we do, what we buy, where we go on the internet, the most intellectual property. So there really is this kind of unprecedented monopoly power that this industry, and in particular these four or five firms hold. Mm. Is it fair to say that some of them, not all of them, started off with good intentions? Or is that something that's sold to us? You know, when you kind of read about like, <laughs> like a mythology, Steve Jobs writing on his blackboard and like believing that these people want to do good. You know, that's funny about Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs was actually not a great guy to know. It's funny, his daughter's memoir. I don't know if you've seen I any- haven't. I want to oh, read that. Oh man, it's yeah, that's like the dark side of Steve Jobs. You know, I've covered business for almost 30 years. And the truth is that a lot of people that start, 
huge, powerful firms are pretty sharp elbowed, (laughs) you know. So there was, I would say, in the mid-1990s, which is when a lot of these firms were starting up and when the consumer internet was really coming to the fore, there was a more innocent vibe in the Valley. And I'm old enough that I was out there as a very young reporter back then. Um, In fact, the first company I went to see was Yahoo, which doesn't even really exist anymore in its old form. And Google was just getting started. But it's interesting. If you go back, you can see the seeds of where we are now early on. So one of the things I did for this book is to go back and read the first paper that the founders of Google, Larry Page and Sergey Brin, did about search. In 1998, they were grad students at Stanford. And you read through this whole paper and they talk about how the search engine will work and what it will do. But at the very end, they talk about how you might make money off something like this. And they have a little paragraph on page 33 or something like that, where they talk about targeted advertising as a way of making money in search. And this is how these companies make money, right? They follow you around the internet. They see what you do, where you go. I mean, they can even track your eye motions if there's a camera. If you have an Android handset, that handset knows where you are. If you're in a record shop or in the grocery store, um, which aisle you're in. So lots and lots of information. And they said back then that if companies used this method of making money on a search engine, that it would inevitably bring the interests of users and the interests of advertisers, be they company or public entities, into conflict. And that's exactly where we are now. Mm. Do you think looking back, this is a very hypothetical question, but do you think it would have been better if we were paying for the systems? We know where we stand and actually we're the like customer. Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, I think that a lot of companies in the media, the FT is certainly one, have decided that a subscription model is really the best way to go. And I think a lot of consumers are beginning to understand that if you want content you can trust, if you want to have your privacy respected, you probably are better off paying. On the other hand, that creates a bifurcation, right? Because some people can afford to pay, you know, a few hundred dollars for a subscription for a high quality publication, but many people either can't or don't want to. And so you get this kind of information divide. And there's also an age divide there. So most young people are now getting most of their news from sources like Facebook, like YouTube. Unfortunately, there's a lot of research that shows in a number of countries when consumption via those sorts of platforms go up, trust in liberal democracy democracy goes down because they're rife with fake news, right? And fake news, by the way, is six times more likely to spread than the real thing. So you get all the problems that we see today of people being sort of pulled into filter bubbles where whatever our existing prejudices are may be kind of enhanced. And, and I think that that's one of the reasons that you have the politics that you do both in the UK and the US. So true. And also, I don't think anyone could afford to pay like, a subscription across literally everything we use. Indeed, yeah. Um, but yeah, I was reading yesterday about the deep fakes and actually someone had done a deep fake on one of our politicians here in the UK and I mean it looks like it's him it looks like he's speaking and it's just we're at a strange time right now aren't we well it's a post fact world. It's a post-truth world. And it's interesting. The historian Neil Ferguson did a book called The Tower in the Square. He sort of likened the period that we're in, this period of disruption in all ways, economic, political, cultural, to the advent of the printing press, right? When everyone could suddenly read the Bible in their own language. And okay, like that's great on the one hand, but it also led to 150 years of religious wars. So there was this incredible period that you had to come through. And I think that we are right in the midst of that. It's a weird one, isn't it? Because I almost feel like 
I'm waking up to it, even mm. though we've all been on the internet for like decades. I suddenly feel really, actually, really out of control. And, yeah. and like, there's almost no going back. And like, how can I backpedal all of this data and all of this intrusion of my privacy? It's almost like mm. we've almost been fed that we signed up to it. Well, it's interesting. George Soros, the investor, has given a couple of very powerful speeches recently and talked about how there is this generation, a generation of digital natives who really don't know what it was like to have true privacy or possibly even free will. And, you know, that's quite a profound thing, but it gets into how powerful are these algorithms that are leading us around the internet. They're watching us. They have an incredible cache of data on all of us. And so they know what you might be thinking before you even think it. I mean, even if you just look at the sort of software that helps us to complete sentences, how good that's getting, right? That can be taken to many more degrees in terms of what we want, not just consumer choices, but potentially political choices as well. It's so true, because on one hand, obviously, I'm creeped out by all. And on the <laughs> other hand, I was on Spotify the other day, and you know, they curate your like perfect playlist, or mm-hmm. they suggest you songs. I loved every single song. And I was like, this app knows me. Yeah. yeah <laughs> then yeah. I felt like this emotional connection. And then I was like, this is weird. We are in the matrix. Oh, <laughs> But I wanted to ask you about your work as a journalist, because reading this book, I felt actually really grateful for your work because standing up to this stuff and it kind of I've interviewed a lot of people recently who was kind of speaking truth to power. It's really brave. Well, I appreciate that. That's very kind of you. It is hard. I think that one of the things that has helped me is that I was never a beat reporter. You know, if you're covering specific companies or you're covering the tech industry, it's really hard sometimes to come out and speak very openly about the dark side because you have to keep going back to that well. And these companies are tough. It's interesting. I have been a financial and business journalist almost 30 years. I have never seen an industry that will push as hard against journalists. Their lawyers will call. Your bosses will get calls. I mean, there's a lot of intimidation that goes on, not just of journalists, but of politicians. These folks are now, Google and and Amazon in particular, are now the largest lobbying forces in Washington. They're in Brussels. They're in London. They're subtly or not so subtly creating this sense of cognitive capture. When I was researching the book, I actually found it very, very difficult to find independent academic analysis of these issues because so many of the academics themselves had been paid for their research by these companies. Yes, because a lot of the advertising revenue, I guess, is coming from these companies themselves. It's really funny. And while it's not funny, it's a bit depressing. But because they've so hollowed out the advertising business and particularly local papers and local publications have really, really suffered in the media industry, they're now having to to go in and try and create more local news. So Facebook and Google are now paying publications to try and create this stuff. It's almost kind of a Marxist, you know, capitalism eating itself kind mm. of a kind of a thing. Yeah, it really highlights the power in in money, obviously. But um, when you think about when I, whenever I read rich lists, you know, like the yes. Sunday Times has a rich list, and you know, the same old people are on there. And just for once, I want to see like a woman, like yeah. a self-made. I don't know, someone who isn't in that world. Well, there's the woman who started Spanx. I guess. Oh, yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, woo, woo, exactly. We all love them. No, it's interesting. It, it actually makes me wonder because, all right, there's a, a generation of digital natives who they've only grown up with these products. And we all love these products. I mean, I completely take your point. My Apple playlist is, you know, I love it. But younger people, I think, are also quite skeptical of unfettered capitalism. And they're quite skeptical of the system, the hypocrisies in the system. And in some ways, I wonder if Silicon Valley isn't setting itself up to be the new wall 
Street, you know, so it's going to be a bit of an Occupy Silicon Valley kind of a, a thing when people see that, all right, folks like Mark Zuckerberg, Sheryl Sandberg, Eric Schmidt, I mean, they are huge political forces. They are exerting a lot of behind the scenes power. And these companies are disintermediating jobs. I mean, they're huge companies, but they actually don't create a lot of jobs the way a previous generation would. And that's something that's really going to affect younger people. Yes, you write a lot about gig work in that mm. in that respect, because I feel like it's a funny one because I write a lot about self-employment in a positive way yeah. if it can work and you can create like a micro business and actually if your employer isn't treating you very well you can go and start your own company yourself and yes. employ the right people etc but I feel like the gig economy is so negative well I have a whole chapter on that in the book and I call it the uberization of everything and you know I like everybody I kind of am always interviewing uber drivers when I'm in the car and some of them will say exactly what you do hey this can be great because it creates freedom and flexibility. And actually, it's interesting when you survey people, particularly younger people, even more than money, they want flexibility. And and I think that that's in part because there's been a generation that has grown up when the idea of a job for life is just, it doesn't exist anymore. The social compact is broken. So people, I think, A, have a, probably a healthier sense of, all right, I'm going to work, but you know what, I'm going to have a life too, and I'm going to make my work revolve around me. So that's good. But on the other hand, it's such an asymmetric transaction. Because if you think about what Uber knows about what's going on in a driver's car and how it can sort of funnel drivers and customers to the places that it wants them to go, what's most profitable for the company. The driver doesn't have that information. The driver doesn't own that data and intellectual property. And that's actually something that the labor union movement is actually starting to look into. There's in New York, there's a kind of a new labor movement, the freelancers union, and they deal with people like Uber drivers, but they also deal with graphic designers and writers and people kind of higher up the socioeconomic spectrum who are dealing with these same problems where companies have all the power, individuals don't. But if we think about our data as a resource that they are mining and how can we actually take back some of the value of that data, I think that's a very interesting area to think about. It's really true because when you think of something like Uber, etc., everyone's dispensable. Yeah. And, and that is like the height of insecurity. Right. And so if you start to think about what it means to be working class, and maybe being working class is not about monetary figure that you might make, but perhaps it's about insecurity, not having a pension, not having proper benefits of any kind, not having any sick leave. More and more of us are in that situation. And yet these companies are allowed to not pay benefits, treat people as though they are not full-time workers. And, you know, this also gets into the idea, this kind of, you had mentioned, were these companies ever not evil? Or was there a mythology in the beginning? I think that there was always a little bit of a myth that Silicon Valley was some hippie enclave. You know, I mean, really, it's quite a libertarian place. You know, it's the move fast and break things model and society is in the way. It's quite an entitled view. Yeah, it's really your book really, maybe I'm naive, but I was reading it and I was like, I find it so hard to imagine that amount of greed. There's being rich and there's like having money and being able to like, you know, spend loads of money on your family and how lovely you might have a yacht or something. But I'm like, why do these companies need that amount of power? It's a really interesting question. You know, I used to be a foreign correspondent based in the UK and this is back in the 90s. And I actually worked in a high tech firm in London myself for a time in the last bubble in the late 1990s. I remember noticing that there were a lot of entrepreneurs here in Cambridge and 
in London that, all right, they'd make a lot of money, but maybe they'd make like 25 million pounds or something. And then they would stop and garden or do something kind of more soul enriching. Whereas the guys in the valley never stop. As a matter of fact, I remember one friend who had made a fair bit of money on a tech firm in London and then moved to the valley and joined a venture capital firm and kept making money. And I said, like, why do you need to do this? Why don't you just, you know, go play tennis or something or hike? And he's like, well, you don't understand. In the Valley, anything below $100 million, you're just a civilian. (gasps) (laughs) Oh, my God, I'm going to be sick. (laughs) So I do think there's this particularly, you might call it an American form of laissez-faire capitalism that is just greed is good. And actually, that's worth mentioning, too, that the heads of these companies really came of age. They're quite young, many of them, under 40-some. They came of age at a time when government was really out out of power. You know, it was the rise of the private sector, the Thatcher-Reagan revolution, the idea that governments were only good for cutting taxes. And so I think that there's this sort of disregard for anything except for unfettered capitalism that I, I really see in the valley. Yes, because with the monopolization of it all, and you, you talk about that in the book, it surprises me that there's not more like legal policy around that. I think we're heading that direction. There's actually a very interesting young woman in the U.S., um, Lena Khan, who is a scholar. She was at Yale and now Columbia, and she's now working with the House Antitrust Committee. And she's made some interesting comparisons that I think are very, very smart to the 19th century railroad monopolies. So if you think about in the 19th century when railroads were being built, the titans that came in and did that, the Vanderbilts, the Rockefellers, they owned the tracks. They built the tracks. So they owned the network, but then they owned the commerce on the network, too. So they owned the railroad cars. They owned the resources that went in them, the coal, the grain, et cetera. And eventually, that just became a zero-sum game. And so in the States, there was a reformer named Louis Brandeis who came in and broke up these companies and really stood up to power. And there were journalists, too, like Ida Tarbell, for example, who you know took on John D. Rockefeller. I think we are at that stage again because actually, if you look at the concentrations of corporate power and also the amount of wealth inequality, it's quite similar to what it was in the Gilded Era. And so I think you can make a case that a company like Amazon, for example, which is the platform for e-commerce and yet also sells its own products and can push you to its own products, that that's an anti-competitive position and, and that it probably should be changed. Well, another topic of the book that is also depressing I wanted to talk to you about is healthcare and online healthcare and the evolution of that. Because I remember when Amazon Alexa was partnering, it was announced with the NHS, you know, you could ask Alexa if you have a health problem. I absolutely despised that idea. And I just thought, I don't want to tell this piece of technology, like, is nothing sacred? Like, (laughs) you want to know everything. And now you want to know about my illnesses. Would you be able to talk a little bit about that? Because it's so fascinating, that chapter. Well, so there's there's a few things in there. First of all, I completely... (laughs) agree with you about Alexa. My husband loves Alexa. I made him disconnect Alexa. I'm like, I do not want a surveillance device in our home. She's listening. She's listening. It's so creepy. But particularly when you take Alexa beyond an area like, you know, your music choices or what kind of scarf you want to buy or whatever, and you take it into something like healthcare or your finances, that can have real world ramifications. And, you know, you're already seeing cases of what has been dubbed algo racism or algorithmic bias, where 
where people might not be able to get mortgages or they might be, say, targeted for predatory lending because of information that the algorithms know. So that is a real world thing. Data breaches in healthcare, that's already happened both in the UK and in the US. But it's interesting, these firms are now piling in. So just a few days ago, Google announced that, well, it didn't announce, it was the Wall Street Journal discovered that Google had been in a secret partnership with America's second largest hospital chain. And it had shared data with 50 million patients without informing the patients, without informing the doctors. So there is a land grab going on now where all the big firms, which by the way, they want to be the operating system of your life. And that's what Alexa is about. You know, they want to know everything about you so that you now turn to them for all choices. It's a natural monopoly and it simply won't stand. I worry that we've already come to a point where it's going to be very difficult to unwind. So you look at the insurance business, for example, already changing profoundly because of all these technologies. So voice assistants are one thing, and they do get inside your head in a way that even just using the internet and typing doesn't. But you can take it a step further and look at how the insurance industry is putting sensors around people's homes or in their cars. And so your insurance agent may now be able to see if you're driving too fast, if you have a child in the car and Perhaps you're not stopping quickly enough, and then maybe your premium goes up. That disrupts an entire model of collective service. And the idea of insurance is that it works because it's meant to pool risk. But suddenly, the technology now allows it to be micro-targeted to the individual, which I worry creates a real, almost black mirror-like sense of have and have not in society, where there are people whose likes and rankings and profiles will be sort of way up here and they move ahead and have a bright, shiny future. And then there are some that simply become uninsurable or unemployable. And I I think I'm quite worried about that. That is something we desperately need a public debate about. That is so true. And just the hierarchy, like putting people in that sort of categorization is gross. It's dehumanizing. And I feel like it is happening in a way that we like laugh it off and we find it funny now with like people who have more followers than others get better treatment. It's already happening, but that is like the next level, isn't it? Well, it is. I find it very dehumanizing. And, you know, we haven't even gotten into really the the cognitive and emotional implications of these technologies. There's research showing now that if I were to take out my phone and put it on the table between us now as we're speaking, it would actually decrease empathy within our conversation and within our relationship because there's a distraction. There's something that is pulling me away from connecting with you as another human being. You're seeing higher levels, particularly in young younger people who, by the way, spend an hour in the U.S., I think it might be slightly lower in the U.K., but in the U.S., they spend an average of about seven hours a day on devices. Mm-hmm. Teenagers do that. You're seeing higher rates of anxiety and depression, self-harm. So it's a bit like alcohol where, all right, maybe it's okay to have one drink to be social and, you know, you sort of be, you be part of the group. But then as your consumption goes up, there are all these risks. And we're just beginning to see what those are. If we could rebel against it, if we could disconnect, how would we? Because I interviewed the director of the Netflix, the documentary about Cambridge Analytica. Oh, yeah. And what was interesting is she was like, I've made this documentary, but I'm also going to go and post about it on Facebook later to tell everyone it's out. How do we live with kind of... That's so interesting. Well, you know, digital detoxes are becoming quite a thing that people are doing. And, you know, we all, I think, know people that have done that. I've actually cut off Facebook. I don't use Facebook anymore. I do use Twitter as a journalist just to distribute my own content. I almost use it as a news feed to check out what other people are doing. But I've really set some limits on myself. I mean, it's almost 
almost like cutting any habit that has become disruptive, cigarettes or alcohol, whatever it is. I, I now try and check my email during the course of a work day only three times a day. But I got to say, it's really hard to do it because the baseline for connectivity and for what people expect from you has completely changed. And again, there's a, there's a generation that I think is really having an almost existential crisis about this. I'm thinking about a time a couple of weeks ago, I was speaking at a conference on social media and a young woman came up to me during the break and said that she had done a birthday party for her father recently and she'd filmed it and she was, you know, giving him the cake and all that. And she said she felt compelled to post it, even though she sort of wanted in her heart of hearts to have a bit of a private moment, but that she felt if she didn't post, it somehow hadn't happened. It wasn't real. And so there's this sense of living in a world where you're not seen unless you have a digital profile. And of course, that can put on steroids all of the anxieties that, you know, we all struggle with in the real world anyway. So how do you change things? Well, I think a digital detox is a, is a great exercise. It's almost like putting a meditation app on your phone that you, which, you know, it's kind of ironic that, that we do that as well. But um, I think that's a great exercise. I think also just starting to have a public debate in the same way we did when, you know, when cigarettes were a thing in the 60s or 70s, everybody smoked. And then there was a public debate about, oh, actually, there are these consequences. Mm -hmm. And then behaviors changed. And so I think we are at that tipping point now. It's so true, because if the behaviors change, then the companies won't make the money. It's almost like maybe we do have more power than we think. I think we do. I mean, it's interesting. Just a few days ago, Jimmy Wales, who is the founder of Wikipedia, came out and set up an alternative to Facebook, a new social networking site that is not targeted advertising driven. So it's not vulnerable to that sort of predatory targeting of consumer and citizens. It's a donation type site like Wikipedia or The Guardian or something like that. And there are already about 300,000 people signed up within the course of a few days. So it shows that there is demand for different products. Totally. I mean, it's such a conscious thing that we, we have to start doing, I think, especially with friendships and relationships, because I hate the idea of someone like vanishing from Facebook and then you kind of don't check up on them or something because they're not front of mind. That would be really bad. And right. Weird. You mentioned throughout the book that you have a son. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> he's and, probably on his phone right now. And I really, I love the book for that because I think there's a lot of books where like the hard facts are there, but I mm. feel like it was very human in the way that you, you wrote it as well. You brought it back to your personal life a bit. I don't have children, but I know that it's like the topic of conversation is how do we deal with mm. young people now with, with all of this? You talk a little bit about how you work, work that out with the gaming and, and things like yeah, that. Yeah, well, you know, um, my son Alex, who was 10 when I started writing this book, um, was a big trigger for me for writing it. I'd already been studying all the issues, the political issues and the economic issues as part of my work. But I came home one day right before I started doing the proposal for the book and I had a credit card bill that I had opened and I looked and there were all these tiny charges like $1.99, $5. And they were all from the Apple App Store. And I thought, that's very weird. So I started tallying them up and it was over $900 in charges. And I thought, who has my password? My son. And I went downstairs, found him on his phone, tried several times to get his attention, finally did, (laughs) and started interviewing him about this. And it turns out he had become addicted to an online football game. And these games, like, you know, many video games are given for free, supposedly. But of course, you're not paying in money. You're not paying in currency. You're paying with your data. So they draw you in. They offer you this free game. And then when you're in the game, you're often offered in-app purchases or loot boxes, they're sometimes called. So if you want to move ahead in the game, you have to buy virtual Ronaldo or you have to buy a new kit for your players or whatever it is. And that is real money that's being spent, but doesn't look like real money. It looks like, you know, kind 
kind of icons or gold coins or something. So he's rolling through this game for hours on end and racking up over $900 in charges in the course of a month. So as a mother, I was completely creeped out and felt terrible for a number of reasons um, and immediately put parental controls on the phone and decreased his usage. But as a business journalist, I thought, oh, my gosh, this is an incredibly effective sales technique and I need to understand this. I mean, you write in the book about the slot machine kind of um, yes. analogy. That really, I've heard like words being used about the addictive nature of it, but that was it. Well, it is. And, you know, I began, as I began researching, I found that a lot of these technologies actually come out of something called the Stanford Persuasive Technology Lab, which is a bit Orwellian sounding. It's funny, the folks that started it actually started with benign ideals. I mean, they wanted to use sort of behavioral psychology to nudge people to be healthier, maybe to stop smoking, whatever it is. Unfortunately, the nature of commerce, capitalism, you know, the folks that come into the program tend to go off and start things like Instagram or the latest video game. But there is an entire science. It's actually called captology, meaning the capture of your attention and how to do that. And so they use things like casino gaming techniques, the same sorts of techniques, variable rewards that you might have in a slot machine are literally now in your phone and in your brain. Mm. Oh, my goodness. Well, I feel like maybe we should leave the list on something <laughs> like slightly practical yeah. and not too overwhelming. I mean, is there anything you, I know you mentioned parental controls or anything our daily life that we, we could do? I mean, I haven't really figured out really a day-to-day tip or hack yet mm. for keeping a little bit of privacy back? Is there anything mm-hmm. that you do? Well, it's interesting, in part because of pressure from activists within the industry. There's a lot of people in tech that have become really disturbed about all the things that we're talking about, and they have themselves been putting pressure on the firms like Apple and Google to make tweaks to their handsets. So there's actually a lot more now that you can do to track the usage of apps, to turn off apps, or to shift the way your phone is sort of pinging you. And, you know, there are adjustments that you can make. There are ways that you can pull back from this. Like turning off the location. Yeah, turning off location services, turning off the way in which you're tracked. And I think that we're about to see a host of new products. I mean, there are new search engines coming out that are privacy-based and don't track you. So I do think we're on the cusp of change. But I think just, you know, kind of getting this story out and shifting the narrative is the most important thing right now. Totally. That's such a fascinating conversation. And your book, you know, it's had such brilliant reviews. People have really learned a lot from it. So thank you so much. And hopefully we'll have much more public debates and conversations as we go. And you've really like started and ignited that movement. Thank you. Well, thank you for the airtime. Thanks so much. Thank you. 